Well, over 45 years ago, uh, J.I. Packer wrote a book entitled Knowing God. And in that book, he argued very persuasively uh, something that makes no sense to most people. But he argued that the most practical knowledge that a person can have is the knowledge of God. And he made this analogy. He said, just like it would be cruel to take a person from one country uproot that person, put them down in the the middle of a major city in another country where they didn't know the culture, they didn't know the language, they didn't know the laws, what was inbounds, what was out of bounds, just as that would be very cruel to do. He says, we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place And life in it is a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life, blindfold, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way, you can waste your life and lose your soul. I dare say none of us say, I want to waste my life. That's my, I want to waste my life and lose my soul. No, we want to see God. We want to experience everything God has for us. James, the author of the book we're studying, he had this same understanding about the importance of knowing God and growing in the knowledge of God. In today's passage, which is James 1, verses 9 through 18, James identifies a couple of specific areas of life And basically tells us that if you don't understand the character of God in relation to these two areas, you will misinterpret uh, what is happening to you in ways that are devastating. And the two areas of life that he flags are our financial status and the trials and temptations that we face. And so if we don't understand who God is in relation to these two areas of life, Uh, we will invite all sorts of unnecessary turmoil and frustration into our lives. And so, therefore, first of all, James says in verses 9 through 11, believe what is true about God and his kingdom in relation to your financial status. And he'll tell us what specifically we need to believe about God. But it's, it's impressive here. James addresses both the poor and the wealthy, in this, in this passage, and he challenges us to view our financial status in light of our spiritual status in Christ. Now, I want to say this. So here at Faith, we, we, uh, we preach uh, uh, expository sermons, meaning we let each passage set the agenda. And so there are other passages that make other points about poverty and wealth. Uh, for example, in chapter 2, James will say, if you have a brother that comes to you and needs food and clothing and you send that person away with nothing but words, James will say, if you do that, your faith is dead. That's not a living faith. And so it is a core commitment for believers to give to the poor and and have compassion on those that have less than we do. But that's not the point James is making in this passage, so that's what we're not, we're not going to talk about that today. James's specific challenge in this passage to both the poor and the rich is to view our current economic status in light of our heavenly spiritual status in Christ. Look at verse 9. He says, but the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, 
And so he calls him a brother, so that means that this is a Christian. This is a, a brother or sister in Christ. And the term he uses for humble circumstances is the, just the common term for humble, so the humble brother. And since he, he talks about the rich man in the next verse, uh, it seems very clear that he's talking about, about a, a person who is humble financially, a per- person who is in humble circumstances economically. And it's likely that the vast majority of those reading James's letter were in this category. They were probably basically uh, the equivalent of day laborers. They didn't have a lot of extra money saved up for emergencies. Uh, and they prayed, give us this day our daily bread. They, they were looking for today's provision or this week's provision. And James tells the poor Christians to boast or to glory in their high position. And, of course, he's not advocating prideful boasting. He's advocating a type of, of God-centered boasting or glorying. He's saying this is what you, you should find your greatest delight in your exaltation. So he's urging them to look beyond their earthly economic status and find satisfaction in their exalted heavenly status, both in this life and in the life to come, the new heaven and the new earth. And as I thought about this, this this week, I'm like, who urges this on poor people? I mean, nobody else that I know of really believes this. Many Christians don't believe this. We'd say, well, if you don't really talk about the, the tangible material needs, you talk about these heavenly realities, that's just words. What good is that going to do? Well, for Jesus and his followers, they had this very clear, this very laser-sharp uh, perspective that this world is uh, this world is not our home. We are living in exile. We are out of place in this world, and uh, our our time in this world is a very short prelude to eternity. And so we should let our reality in eternity bleed back into this life and inform how we live in this life. And that's not in any way to trivialize the hardships of material lack. But it's to say that we shouldn't ignore this heavenly reality because the the perspective that James is giving here can absolutely change the way we view our circumstances. And so the New Testament consistently teaches that believers have already been raised up and been seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And when Christ's return, when Christ returns, he will give us as believers a glorified body akin to his, okay? And so what James says is anticipate that day, believe in that day, and let it inform how you live here and now. And so glory in your exalted status, okay? That's what he says to the poor. Beginning in verse 10, he addresses the rich. And some understand James to be addressing wealthy unbelievers. He'll do that in in chapter 5, for example. But it seems more likely that the term brother in verse 9 governs this verse also. So he's talking about a rich brother here. And this is what he writes. And this is the vast majority of us in the room. In, in the New Testament, if you have more than your essential needs met, uh, you're rich, okay? If you have food and clothing and uh, shelter, then you're, you're taken care of. You have more than that, you're in this category of rich. You find that in 1 Timothy 6. But he says this, And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation 
because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. James is alluding to a well-known passage in Isaiah 40, uh, verses 6 through 8. And in that passage, Isaiah says that all flesh, every single person, is like grass that withers. It's like the flower that fades. And so this is true of rich and poor alike. But James takes that verse and he applies it specifically to the rich person. Now, why would he do that? Well, because the poor, those that are in the midst of just constant hardship and experience just the reality of, of death and devastation week in and week out, they don't have to be reminded very much that all flesh is grass, okay? It's the, the rich that tend to think, I'm invincible. I figure out how to get ahead in this world, and I figure out how to stay ahead in this world. It's those that are wealthy and comfortable in this life that can tend to think, man, I am, I am good in this life, in the life ahead. It's the rich, it's the wealthy that tend to think that there will be a day when how much money you have, how much power you have will be absolutely irrelevant. And so think of it this way. Uh, imagine if somehow you knew ahead of time that, I know this is a morbid thought, but imagine that you're going to die in your sleep tonight. You're going to die peacefully in your sleep. Tomorrow morning, you're going to wake up in the presence of Jesus. You knew that's going to happen. How would you think about your wealth today? Chances are you wouldn't strut around. You wouldn't think, man, I've got it made. I've figured out this life. I am sitting pretty. No, chances are you would think, when I stand before Christ, my only hope is his death that paid for my sin, his resurrection that gives me life, his enthronement that means that he has defeated every enemy, every threat that I have. The only boast I will have is in Jesus Christ. So from the perspective of the New Testament, this life is a day. Compared to eternity, this life is a day. So if we're going to boast in Christ tomorrow, then we have to be consistent and boast in Christ today as well. Jeremiah said this, and he, uh, this is Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, and he, he's, he's broadening it out beyond wealth, but he says, Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts, if you want to glory in something, if you want to be proud of something, boast of this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. And so here's the truth about God that James wants us to believe. The truth is that whether poor or rich, our boast, our boast is always and only in Jesus. And so again, there, there will be a day when, when, when the the poorest Christian and the wealthiest Christian both stand before Jesus empty-handed, okay? Nothing to the cross I bring. You know, we bring, bring nothing to God. And our only boast will be the death, resurrection, and enthronement of Jesus. And if you are in Christ, 
whether you're, whether you're poor or rich in this life, if you are in Christ, everything he has is yours. You will inherit the earth. Uh, you will experience fully all the spiritual blessings that are in Christ. And so if we plan to boast only in Christ on that day, James says we should, should also boast only in Christ on this day and tomorrow and the rest of our lives. And so that's the first issue, poverty and wealth, uh, poor and rich. In verses 12 through 18, James pivots and he talks about uh, trials and temptations. And he says, believe what's true about God in relation to the trials and the temptations that you face. And it's interesting that, that he uses the same Greek work, word that's translated trials for temptations, okay? It's the same word. So you have to look at the context to see which he's talking about. In verse 12, it's clear he's talking about the topic that was introduced in verses 2 through 4 that Brian talked about last week. He's talking about trials that God uses to refine us, and he uses to, to uh, breed perseverance in our lives. And uh, James pronounces a blessing on those who persevere under trials in verse 12. He says, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And so to those who allow their trials to refine them, those people will persevere. In other words, when things get tough, you won't give in, you won't give up, you will keep following after God. And James says that this perseverance proves that that person's faith is genuine. They don't have a faith that says, God, I will trust you. I will walk with you if you do these five things for me. Do you do that? We're good. No, this person will have a faith like Job's that says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. He's God. I'm not. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And that person, James says, will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And the term crown was used of the, the laurel wreath, the wreath of, of, uh, of leaves that was placed on the victorious athlete's head, like uh, someone that ran a race in the Olympics. And uh, James says that this is called the crown of life, meaning this crown, this wreath is life. The reward is eternal life that this person gives. And the description to those who love him, that's a way of describing a genuine believer. And for those who love Jesus, eternal life, living in his presence, experiencing him through all eternity, that's the best reward. That's the best crown imaginable. And so he talks about trials, but beginning in verse 13, James, using the same word, he makes the transition to talk about temptations internal temptations that lure us into sin. And what it suggests, using the same word, it suggests that trials can become temptations if we don't understand who God is, if we don't respond to them uh, in light of who God really is. And so the determining factor, whether our, uh, a tough situation becomes a temptation, is what we really believe about God in that temptation. And the scenario in verse 13 is so true to life. When we find ourselves in a tough place, when we find our tempted, we just immediately, just instinctively look for somebody to blame. Uh, 
And so James says this in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Now, we're generally not so bold as to flat out say, God is enticing me to do something evil. We're a lot more subtle than that. We might find ourselves thinking or saying things like, well, if I didn't have the childhood I had, if it, would, if it weren't so rough, if I didn't experience so many hard things as a kid, I wouldn't be tempted to anger, discouragement, and bitterness. I look around and I think, those people over there, they have no idea how easy they have it. If I had their childhood, I wouldn't have a fraction of the temptations that I face. You ever thought anything like that? The insinuation is, God did not do a very good job in protecting me and providing for me when I was a kid. Or sometimes we we find ourselves thinking, you know, if God had made me differently, if he had given me a different temperament, you know, if I weren't such an extrovert, I wouldn't always be just out there so much saying things that I regret later. Or if I weren't such an introvert, I'd just find it easier to develop whatever. Or if God had made me just a little bit smarter, or if God hadn't made me so brilliant, you know, brilliance is a, it can be a burden, okay? Just knowing so much more than everybody else and being so clued in to so many things, it's a hardship. If God hadn't made me this way, I wouldn't have all the temptations I have. Or if God had given me a different fill-in-the-blank spouse, different kids, different parents, different siblings... I wouldn't face the temptations I do. So there's a dozen variations on this. Now, it is true that some people legitimately have a harder life than other people, okay? And so that's really undeniable. Some of you have have had a, a lot harder experience to date than others. Uh, but the topic James is addressing is not whether or not our lives are harder than others, but is God the source of temptation? And we see this dynamic in play in, in, uh, in Genesis 3. You may remember that after Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God shows up and he says to Adam, he says, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And do you remember what Adam said? It's just classic. He said, the woman, not just the woman, the woman you gave me, she took from the tree and I ate. He wasn't just blaming the woman. He was by insinuation. God, it's your fault that I did this. James says there's two great reasons why we should never say anything like that. First, God cannot be tempted by evil. There's nothing within him that is drawn to do evil. Second, therefore, uh, he would never draw anybody else into evil. People only tempt others to do the types of things that they themselves would like to do. So if you're not prone to go out and rob somebody, you're probably not going to get your buddies and say, hey, let's go rob somebody, right? You're not going to tempt other people to do that type of thing. Since nothing within God is, is lured into evil, he himself never lures anyone else into evil. So where does temptation come from? Verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Uh, 
And the word lust is a, it's a word that simply means a strong desire. And many times, perhaps most of the time, like here, it's talking about strong, sinful desires. And so James says, don't ever think your temptations come from God. No, God, as he'll talk about later, is good, all good, all the time. But he tells us our temptations come from our own sinful desires. And so it could be a strong desire for sexual gratification, the desire for respect, the desire to be recognized and appreciated. It could be the desire to have your own way. It could be the desire for material prosperity, the desire for comfort. It could be any number of desires. And none of the things I just mentioned are necessarily wrong in and of themselves. But when we we have a selfish, self-centeredness to those desires, then we are tempted. And he uses imagery from the world of fishing when he writes that we are carried away and enticed by our lusts. And so our lusts are akin to a worm on a hook. We're like fish who think, that looks amazing. We see that desire and we think, this is my lucky day. This is going to be better than anything else I could possibly imagine. And we take the bait, and we get hooked, and we get carried away. And we have no idea that that's what happens. But instead of life and satisfaction, we experience death and frustration. Our lusts are that dangerous. Most people don't think lusts are that dangerous. James says they are that dangerous. In verse 15, James uses the imagery of reproduction to make his point. And James is very, very creative and insightful here. He says, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished or when sin grows up, it brings forth death. Uh, Eugene Peterson has this paraphrase called the message. This is the way he, he uh, paraphrases this first. He says, lust gets pregnant and has a baby, namely sin. When sin grows up to adulthood, it becomes a real killer. And so that accurately reflects the progression in what James is saying. And so what starts out as a a very simple desire, which often makes us feel so alive, starts out as a simple desire, it grows into something that brings forth death. We're less alive and less responsive to God and his ways. And so trials become temptations because of our own lusts, because of our own desires. And so James isn't pointing this out so that we'll engage in this morbid self-condemnation or so that we'll be fixated on our own sinfulness and we'll just, you know, grovel in the dirt. His point is that we dare not blame God for our temptations because he's our only hope to free us to put to death the lusts of the flesh. And so appropriately, James makes this statement in verse 16. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Three times in chapter one, do not be deceived, don't be deluded. And specifically here, he wants us to know that if we blame our temptation and therefore our sin on God, we are deceived. We're absolutely deluded about who God is and what he actually does. To the contrary, what he says in the following verses is that God is the giver of all goodness that we experience. Verse 17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. It's coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. 
And so if there is anything good in your life, anything good in your life, it's from God. Absolutely. Last week we saw in verse 5, if anybody lacks wisdom, ask of God. What does God do? He gives. God is the one who gives. He gives generously and without reproach. He's not stingy. He's not reluctant. God is a God who loves to give us the wisdom we need, especially in the context of trials. And so every good thing given, every perfect gift, it's from above coming down from the Father of lights. James is saying God fathered or created the heavenly lights, the sun, moon, and stars. But unlike the sun, moon, and stars, which go in and out of you, God never changes. There is no variation to his goodness. And the ultimate uh, proof of God's unchanging goodness is what he's done in our lives through the gospel. Verse 18, in the exercise of his will, he has brought us forth. Uh, In other words, he wasn't obligated, he wasn't coerced. It was an exercise of his will. He brought us forth. Literally, he gave birth to us by the word of truth. Just like he, he, he fathered the heavenly lights, he made us his sons and daughters through the word of truth, through the gospel, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. And so just like the first fruit on a tree or the first fruits out in the, the uh, uh, cropland, it suggests that the full harvest is coming. In the same way, when they saw the, the, the gospel bearing fruit in his days, like this is just a foretaste of what's going to happen. You're the first fruit, but God's going to have sons and daughters among every tribe, tongue, and nation. Eventually, he's going to transform all of creation. And so instead of blaming God for our temptation, we should go all the way the other direction. We should give thanks always because God is always good. He's always the giver of good gifts. And so that's what he wants us to know about God in relation to our temptations. Now, just as as verses 8 through 11 uh, didn't say everything we need to know about poverty and wealth, verses 12 through 18 don't tell us everything we need to know about temptation. There's a lot of other scriptures that tell us things like uh, our temptation, uh, uh, first of all, that we should flee from temptation, like your hair's on fire, flee temptation. Scriptures that talk about God providing a way of escape. Scripture that talks about how Satan comes and tempts us. Scriptures that talk about how Jesus can help us in the midst of our temptation because of his earthly experience. But this passage challenges us to believe what's true about God in relation to our temptation and what's not true about God. Namely, here's the truth, God is always good. God is always good. He does use trials to prove the genuineness of our faith, but he never tempts us to do evil. And so this week, you and I are going to experience trials. We're going to experience some hard things. And what we believe about God will determine whether or not those trials turn into temptations, whether we really believe that God is the one who is good. God never leads us into temptation. He never entices us to do. No, he's the one that wants to give us strength and wisdom in the midst of that trial. That's what determines whether it will turn into a temptation. And this week, you and I are going to become aware of our lusts. And and we have different, different lusts. We tend to think that ours are worse than anybody else's. Uh, Well, your life is the only life you can live. When your lusts 
surface. Uh, What you believe about God will determine whether or not you trust him and flee from those lusts, those temptations, or whether you're enticed and hooked and carried away. J.I. Packer was absolutely right. Without a deep abiding knowledge of God, we stumble and blunder through life, blindfolded as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds us. But the converse is also true. With an abiding knowledge of God and his kingdom, we absolutely have a path in this world, and it's a path that leads to life. He is the giver of all good gifts. He longs to give us everything we need so that we can thrive as his followers in this world. And so, God, we ask that you would give us uh, the mind of Christ this week. We pray that as we experience uh, trials and temptations, as we think about our wealth, our lack of wealth, the the things we actually need, we pray, God, that we would think rightly about you. We pray, God, that we would delight in who you are, and we would never doubt that you are a, a good God and that you are generous and that you will gladly give us everything we need. I pray for the person here today who might be especially discouraged, who can't fathom that their life could be different, that they could flee from temptations and experience your power in different ways. I pray, God, that you would would open that person's eyes, give them ears to hear, the faith to believe that you're good. I pray you'd surprise them with your grace this week. And God, in the midst of our, our affluence or lack thereof, we pray that this week we would glory and boast in Jesus alone. Give us, give us a taste of the freedom that that can bring us. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.